emailed uh, me and uh, a couple of others last week and said, the thing that I want you to talk on, so he emailed me, myself and James and Henry, and said, the thing I want you to preach on is around Acts 17 and verses 16 to 32. And he said, look, it's up to you in terms of how you split that up. So I thought, well, I'll have a look, I'll have a look at it and I'll sort of you know, try and work out the best way to split it up. And the best way I could see to split it up was for me to have one verse and for them to have 15 each. <laughs> so, so whatever you do, if you, see, if you see James and Henry in the lobby afterwards, don't go up to them and say, look, Nick was really focused and succinct because he only had one verse to preach on. So, uh, so yeah, they were very um, gracious to me in terms of uh, letting me just uh, preach on one verse. So um, let's go straight into the passage um, that I'm going to talk on, and it's around Acts 17, verses 16 to 32. It's quite a long passage, but um, it's got loads and loads of really good stuff in it. So it starts, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Arapagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching in and, and, and uh, what you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arapagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their anointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring." Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So as I said, I, uh, it's quite a long sort of passage, and I wanted particularly to start in terms of talking from the, the, the first verse, which is around the fact, when I, as I looked on it, I thought, you know, the first verse talks about Paul waiting in Athens and that he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. 
What, and the reason why I wanted to talk on it was just because I wanted to understand for myself some of what it was that drove Paul to do what he did. And I wanted to gain for myself some of the feelings and, and that, that really drove Paul to do lots of the things that he did. So it says in the passage that Paul was, was greatly distressed um, in terms of what he saw on, in terms of Athens. And so what, what, I, what I'm going to talk about this morning is what did Paul feel and what did Paul see? <clears throat> and then I think the other guys over the next couple of weeks are going to talk about what he did and then what he said. So I want to focus today in terms of what did Paul feel and what did Paul see? And I think this will really, really help all of us in terms of we've been talking loads about evangelism and talking to people about our faith. And I think it will really help everybody here to, uh, to, to, to get better at doing what they want to do. Um, so what, what I'm not saying is that in terms of this passage is before we preach the gospel to anyone, before we share our faith, that we have to feel this enormous kind of feeling of kind of deep distress. I think when you're, when you're talking to um, people when you're waiting to pick up your kids from school and everything else, it's not like you have to feel this kind of incredible sense of kind of deep distress. Um, but I do think that... Um, that the story here has got stuff to teach us about how we can really get some of the, the feelings that, that Paul had. So Paul had some quite deep and complex feelings. John Stott talks about, he says, the reason we don't say what Paul says is that we don't see the way Paul sees, and the reason we don't see the way he sees is that we don't feel the way he does. So in order to see the things that Paul saw, and in order to do the things that Paul did, we need to feel the things that Paul felt. <clears throat> so what did Paul feel as he walked around Athens? What does the word around it, you know, talks about he felt greatly distressed? What, what, where does that word come from? And I'm not, a, I'm not a sort of scholar in terms of Greek, and if I pronounce this slightly wrong, please forgive me, but the word, um, the word that this, the deeply distressed comes from is a, is a word called para, paraximos, which basically means he had like a seizure, which is a really kind of powerful thing to have. He didn't just kind of look at the idols, look across Athens and feel this kind of nicey-nicey feeling inside him and think, oh, I probably ought to do something about that one day. He had like a seizure inside him. He was like something kind of really physically kind of big thing kind of got hold of him. And um, if we look at the Bible, the closest equivalent that we get to this in terms of the way that it's described in the Bible is the way in the Old Testament um, how God felt when he saw people worshipping idols. And, and the reason why God felt the way that, that he did when he saw these things happening is because God is, what, God is a jealous God. And, uh, and when we start talking about jealousy, I start thinking about maybe my my kids and the fact that occasionally so my daughter's really upset at the moment because she's the only person in the household that doesn't have an Apple product. So, so, um, so she's a bit jealous of my son because he's got a, an iPad mini or whatever and I, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I have, a, I have a hunch that she's purposely breaking her phone at the moment so that we'll get her a new phone and, and uh, maybe we'll get her, uh, her, her, you know, a different phone. So it's not that kind of jealousy that we're talking about when we talk about God's jealousy. When we talk about God's jealousy, 
What it gets across to us is that God, the way God loves us is a really profound love. Okay, it's not just sweet feelings, it's like thunderous feelings. The way that God views us is not just in a nicey, sweet way. He has thunderous feelings towards us. He loves us with a thunderous love. So there's, there's real complexity um, to God's love for his people. He's like outraged. He doesn't just look at idols that are in people's lives and think, it's a bit of a shame they've got this idol and that idol in their life. He's absolutely outraged by the idols in our life. And so when it talks in the, in, in, the, in the first verse here around Paul feeling deeply distressed, it reflects something of the way that God feels when he looks around the world and sees the idols that, that, that people are worshipping. So, and, I, and I think what's caught up in this is the mixture that God feels in terms of the mixture between an absolute indignation and an absolute compassion So I think we need to understand that. If we're to understand how Paul felt in that situation as he looked around Athens, there was this mixture in him between this absolute indignation and this complete compassion for the the people that he saw. Um, So Jesus, when he was around, he was equally full of truth and tears. And it's really interesting. I don't, you, you must have read um, in, uh, in John chapter 11 the story about Mary and Martha and when, when Lazarus had died. And, and Jesus comes along and, and basically um, Mary said, if you'd still been here, then, he, then Lazarus would still have been alive. And when she said that, Jesus wept. And I, I know everyone knows that sort of passage because it's the shortest passage in the shortest sentence in the Bible and that. But when, when, when um, Mary said it, 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 Jesus was overcome with emotion. He just wept. He couldn't do anything else when he heard that but, but weep. But then Martha says exactly the same thing to him. And, and, and the way that Jesus um, responded to, to Martha was to say, I am the life. <laughs> and it, and it's, it's, it's interesting to look at the way that... that Jesus reacts in slightly different ways. And I think it gives us some kind of understanding of this kind of thing that's going on with God and with Jesus all the time in terms of this mixture between absolute, the the truth and the tears. So God always has to be like true to himself and yet yet he's like a a person of of like tears as well. And he feels so much compassion uh, towards his people. So we all have our own temperaments. So I'm not the same as Sue, my wife. So I'm slightly more kind of, um, uh, I like to do things a little, little bit more on the hoof than that. She, she likes to have a bit more control of the finances than I, than I sometimes do. And I'm a bit impetuous in terms of the way I behave and that kind of thing. And so we do all have our own temperaments our own, and our own personalities. But, um, but I think, if we want to be effective in terms of all the things that we've been talking about in terms of evangelism and that kind of thing, I think it's really important that we feel, if we want to feel this great distress when we see things that, that Paul felt, I think it's really, really important that we get the same sort of spirit, if you like, inside us that Paul had in terms of having this mixture between this indignation and this compassion 
that he had inside him. The, the words greatly distressed, I think that's, that's what that's all about. So when we look around and we see the things that are stopping people from getting to know Jesus and from becoming Christians and that, then there's this mixture between this kind of in, in, indigna, indignation about it and this compassion. So, um, so how do we get the kind of feelings that Paul had? So it's all very well for me to say, yeah, you need to start feeling greatly distressed like Paul, like Paul did, but how do we get those kind of feelings? And the Bible gives us a really helpful indication in terms of how to get those feelings. And Paul says that when he first went to Corinthians, he was filled with fear and trembling. And it goes on to say that Paul resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. So when Paul went to Corinthians, he was, he was filled with fear and trembling. I know a little bit of that this morning in terms of preaching. I'm not used to talking to such a big group of people. I do lots of talking to groups of people, but not necessarily this big. So I know something, a little bit of what um, Paul must have felt. But w- what it says here is that Paul resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. So he, he decided that because he felt all this fear and trembling, that he needed to really understand um, Christ and him crucified. So Paul looked at the cross and he burned it into his heart. And, and I suppose I really want to get that across to you today, that if you want to feel the kind of things that Paul felt, if you want to look at, you know, when, when you look around cities and when you look at people's lives and that kind of thing, if you want to feel the kind of distress, the great distress that Paul felt, that you need to look at the cross and you need to have it burned into your hearts. So I encourage you to, this morning to, to look at the cross, to ask God to give you revelation of what happens on the cross. And I know we all, we all kind of know all about the cross and everything like that, but, but we need to have that, that, to have the cross burned on our heart, that mixture between God's love and his justice and, and that kind of thing. So I, I really want to encourage us to do that. Basically, we should, we should think so highly of God and so highly of people that we want them in each other's arms. So, so we should think so highly of God and so highly of people that we want them in each other's arms. So sh- we should feel this mixture of outrage and brokenheartedness until we see this happen. Um, so we need to have the cross at the centre of, of everything we do. Um, and, if we don't have, and if we don't have this mixture between this this outrage and this kind of brokenheartedness. If we just have the brokenheartedness, the danger is that we'll never have the, um, uh, the, we'll never feel strongly enough to actually do anything about our faith. But if we just have the, the, um, the indignation, then we'll talk to people and we'll do it without sensitivity and without compassion and that kind of thing. So all the time I think we've got to have this kind of mixture inside us, this, this mixture that God feels in terms of this, this mixture between this indignation about the sin and the compassion that he feels towards the people. Um, so so that's, that's kind of how God's... How, I, how Paul felt, and it gives you some kind of indication of this, this how he, what, what it means when it says that he was kind of greatly distressed. And I want to talk then about a little bit about what Paul actually saw, okay? 
And, um, and I, don't, I don't know whether you guys know, but I've, I, I live in London. I live with my wife, Sue, and we've got two children, Cameron and Eloise. And when I, I used to have a, um, a, a little um, convertible, and, um, and it, it actually was really bad because, um, because when I turned 40, I thought, I've got to have a convertible. And it was one of the ways that, and my neighbors laughed when they saw this car turning up when I turned 40. And they, and they said, you know, that's a midlife crisis car if ever I've seen one and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and, and I, so I had it. And, and the worst thing about it was that, that after a little while, um, because I was getting in and out of this car, it did my back in. So, so I actually felt older as a result of having this car than younger. Um, but, but one of my favorite things would be to, um, to just get in the car like in the evening and just drive around London. And it's the most fantastic thing, and I'd, 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 I, I, love, I love London more than any other place in the whole world, and I, I love just, it's fantastic to just drive around, and I love the, the architecture, I love the people, I love, I love driving around at five o'clock in the morning and sort of seeing this kind of as the night merges into the morning and that kind of thing in London, it's the most amazing thing, and I love, like, I drive through, like, King's Cross and that kind of thing, and there's this, you know, this mixture between people still being out because actually they haven't gone to bed from the night before, and this mixture of, like, people getting up to kind of start the new day, and I think there's something fantastic about cities like that, and I absolutely love it, I love kind of seeing all of that, so... So I love, I used to really love um, driving around in my car and just kind of looking around at that. And this is kind of what, so, so Paul, when he went to Athens, what most of us would do, he decided that he'd just do a little bit of sightseeing. So I don't, he, wasn't in it, he wasn't doing quite what I was doing, but he thought he'd have a bit of a look around. And I don't know if, if, if you know what kind of Athens was like in that time, but, but in proportion to its size, it was very likely contained the most learned, civilized, philosophical, highly educated, artistic, intellectual population on the face of the globe. So it was this like center, this epicenter of like creativity and business and everything like that. And, um, and one of the ancient writers also, in terms of what typified Athens at that time, uh, one of the ancient writers tells us that, that at this time there were 30,000 gods in Athens. I think the quote that <clears throat> someone had was something like that there were more gods in Athens than there were people. So it was this incredible place which was this mixture between being this epicenter of culture and stuff like that. And yet there were like all these gods around everywhere. So, um, uh, so what, whilst, whilst Athens was an incredibly impressive place, it was absolutely packed with idols. And, and something that as I've kind of read about, read about this passage, something that I've realized that I didn't realize before was when Paul looked around and it talks about he felt greatly distressed because he saw the idols. It wasn't just the kind of physical idols that Paul saw. He, he had enough kind of wherewithal about him to understand when it talks about what he saw, it comes again, I hope I get the pronunciation right in terms of the, but um, the word comes from a word called theoreo, and it means to theorize or get underneath. So when it talks about Paul seeing the idols, Paul understood he didn't just see the kind of the big buildings. He understood that there were idols in people's hearts, if you like, that, that were underneath all of this art and all of this business and that kind of thing. So, so he, understood, he understood that there was something more than just the kind of outward expression of this. 
And I wanted to, as I was reading um, some, a couple of books about this, I was reading a book by a guy called Tim Keller who was kind of recommended as a really fantastic theologian to, to, to us when we were doing the church planting training. So he, uh, what, what he was talking about was the fact that <clears throat> if we want to have that kind of discernment in situations, if we want to see what's kind of underneath, if we want to understand what's underneath people's situations, there's like no shortcuts. And I know like here at the church we believe in things like the gifts of the Holy Spirit and we believe in words of wisdom and, and, um, and words of knowledge and that kind of thing. But if you want to, on a, on a kind of more consistent basis, if you like, understand what's going on underneath situations, there's no shortcuts. And when the Bible, when you, when you go to the Bible and you ask for guidance, it's really annoying. Um, so, so <laughs> I don't know whether I'm allowed to say that the Bible's really annoying. I probably can. Um, so hopefully, I, I think Chris li- will listen to this, t- this uh, recording at some point. So, uh, but... Um, but yeah, so, so it's really annoying because actually, when you go to the Bible for guidance, it doesn't necessarily give you the answers that you're looking for. What it tells you is the type of people that discern the will of God. So it talks about things like developing character. It talks about your heart. It t- talks about people who, walk, who, who, um, who, who have a life of prayer, who have habits and that kind of thing. And I, I, I guess I felt quite challenged about this as I was preparing the talk because it made me kind of think again about how there, there really aren't shortcuts in the Christian life. If we really do want to be the kind of people that, 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 that Paul was and to feel the distress that he felt and that kind of thing, there are no shortcuts. We have to, we have to if you like, do the miles. We have to spend time with God. We have to read the Bible. We have to you know, get on our knees before God and pray and, and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things to our heart and give us revelation and that kind of thing. Give us revelation on the cross and things like that. So there's no, there's no shortcuts. So I know that I, I, have a, I don't want to become a fat old man, okay? So I have a, I'm a bit of a whatever. I just don't want to become like that. So I occasionally I try and run. Um, and I know that there's no, like when I get up in the morning and I, I've been working away in Dublin and I've been working really long hours. And, um, but, but, but I know that if I'm going to stop myself from becoming like that, I've got to run and I've got to get exercise and I've got to eat healthily and that kind of thing. And it's really, really hard <laughs> to do it. But I know that in order to get what I want to do, I've got to put in the miles. And I think it's the same it's the same um, for in terms of us in, in terms of the Bible and us getting the wisdom and the understanding and that kind of thing. I I we have to put in the miles and it's really important. So going back to, to Athens, it was clear that um, people had or Paul felt he was greatly distressed because people had idols in their hearts. And I, I don't know whether you were, whether people here would understand what, what idols are. And fundamentally what idols are is they're, they're good things that have become the best things. So they're basically the things that God has created that have kind of taken a higher place than, than the actual creator, than the actual person who created them. And, and I think that's, it's really helpful to kind of understand that. So, so idols on the, sur- on the surface of things... You know, they're, they're good things. You know, business, it's not bad to be a businessman. <laughs> it's not bad to be a, a great artist and that kind of thing. It's not, you know, those kind of things, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong in those. But, but when those things become our whole meaning in life, when the acclaim 
of what it does gives me my identity. It's my kind of integration point. It's my meaning. It's my reason to live. And that's when things have got out of kilter. And that's what really, when it talks about Paul being greatly distressed, that's what he saw in Athens. He saw that there were these idols, these things, these these created things that had had taken a higher place in people's lives than than, uh, they ought. I find it really difficult um, preaching sometimes because... uh, because I'm used to working in a business environment where you can get a bit of interaction with people. And, um, and I'd like to talk to you at this point and find out what's going on in your head and what, what you're thinking about. But hopefully what I'm, what I'm talking about is kind of resonating with people and, and, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's helping, helping people. So in terms of Athens, so good things have become the, the best things in, in people's lives. Um, so... Da-da. So Christians can have um, idols as well as much as the unchurched. And you can even get people who, who kind of are in the Christian ministry and actually their job becomes more important than the, than the God that, they, that, that they're seeking to serve. And so all of us have to, all the, all the time, we have to just be really careful about, about where our heart is and what's taking the kind of prominent positions in our heart. So how do we deal with those things? What do we do about it? So if we do recognize that in some way we've got idols in our heart, what can we do about that? And, and, and the big thing that we need to do about that is to focus again on Jesus. And for Jesus to become our glory, for Jesus to become our beauty, for Jesus to become our goodness, our love, our meaning, our righteousness. And that's the thing that will bash down those kind of idols in our life is to have that focus on Jesus, that love for Jesus. He's the most, you know, all of us who have kind of a a relationship with him, he's the most amazing person I've ever met in my whole life. I I love him more than more than anything in my life. And uh and I never thought I'd be like that. And I grew up in a in a family that wasn't a Christian family at all. And um but I but I met this this guy Jesus and he's he's kind of captivated my heart and, and all that kind of stuff. And when things do seek to and occasionally what happens in my life is I let my job become my idol or I let my occasionally my kids become my idol. I, something that I've realized recently is that, you know, I try really hard to bring my children up in a safe and secure environment and that kind of thing. But sometimes I almost kind of hold back on my relationship with God and I and I and maybe not don't take as many risks as I ought to because I'm almost overprotective with my children and actually you know I need to live out the calling of God on my life so so in terms of Sue and I doing you know potentially doing church planting that will expose my family to to risk that they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to but actually you know I've got to be careful that I don't make my kids an idol and actually that they become more important to me than the God that I serve. And that doesn't mean that I become this awful person who's really horrible to my kids all the time. But it's just, it's just making sure that all the time that God is, is in the position that he needs to be. Richard, what time do I need to finish? Uh, minutes, okay, all right. So I guess in terms of, I wanted to just have a list that goes up that tells people, because I wanted to help you to recognize idols in your life. If you, if you, so I've done what, what's called the idol checklist. So it's maybe you could, something you could have in your back pocket when you're going around, around in your week. So it, you can put them all up and I'll just, because I haven't got loads of time. So just, 
just um, these are the kind of things that you could ask yourself in terms of checking to see whether, whether or not you've got um, any idols in your life. So what am I living for? What are my hopes and dreams? What do I wake up and go to sleep thinking about? So I have a tendency as soon as I wake up in the morning to reach for my, my iPad. And I'm not sure that's a kind of good habit to get into. Um, Where does my mind naturally go? What do you daydream about? Whose opinion matters most? Like, you know, if if all the time when I'm doing this talk, I'm thinking about, oh, how's Chris going to respond to this talk? And that kind of thing, much as I really value Chris's opinion and Chris's view, I've, I've got to deliver and talk about what I feel God's put on my heart. So, um, you know, what gives your life meaning? How do you define yourself? That kind of thing. So it's worth just, as you're, you know, eating your Sunday lunch uh, this afternoon, just kind of thinking about these kind of things in terms of, you know, what do I talk about the most? Sometimes living in London, I find I end up talking about houses and conservatories and, you know, cars and and things like that. And and actually, you know, it's... uh, there are more important things than all of that kind of thing. Much as houses are great and conservatories are lovely. So, um, so I guess in, in, in summarizing, so if the bands um, could come back, are they here? Yeah. If the band could come back, I suppose I wanted to make sort of a couple of points here. So we need to get rid of our idols. And the way that we get rid of our idols is for Jesus to be our glory. We want to become ravished by him, for him to give me meaning. He's the one that gives me identity. He's the one who gives me something to live for. I want to be in love with him and understand how in love with me he is. So that's the first thing. We need to get rid of our idols. We need to look at the cross and have it burned on our hearts. If we want to feel the kind of things that Paul felt, we need to have the cross uh, burned on our heart. And I think we need to as well put, and, and in terms of the burn, being burned on our heart, we need to have that, those two things, the love and the justice, those two things so that we feel strongly when we see people ensnared by stuff that's stopping them from following, following God. And then also we need to put in the miles that if we want to feel the kind of things that Paul felt and if we want to see underneath the kind of things that Paul Paul saw in the sea in the same way. We need to put in the miles. There's no, there's no easy ways to being a Christian. You, you need to put in the miles. So I'd like to just finish by, by praying. So if you'd like to stand with me, I'd just like to pray for us. Jesus, we want to tell you that we love you this morning. We want to tell you that we worship you. We want to tell you that you've captivated our hearts. We want to tell you that you're the most precious thing, the most precious person in our lives. We want to tell you that no one will ever captivate our hearts in the way that you have. We want to know that we've been, we just want to know you more and more, that the more we get to know you, the more that we're captivated by by you. And, and God, I pray that for each person here that you'd show them, God, where, where there are things maybe in their lives that have taken um, the place of your, your place in their hearts. And I pray that you'd give us a revelation of that and you'd show us that, God. And thank you that you are the God of grace who forgives us and, and, and that actually what, what you care about is just having that, 
that intensely personal relationship with us. And so I pray for that this morning, Lord God, that you would um, you'd show us yourself afresh and that you would deal with the things in our lives that have, have taken your place, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.